Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. Good afternoon, good evening, or good morning, whatever you may be. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a weekly conversation series where we expose dictators, debate pressing global human rights issues, and brainstorm how Together, we can put human rights at the top of the world's agenda. My name is Roberto Gonzalez, and I am the Chief Legal Officer at the Human Rights Foundation. For those of you who may not be familiar with our organization, let me tell you a bit about HRF. The Human Rights Foundation is a nonprofit organization promoting freedom and democracy primarily in countries under authoritarian rule. Part of our work is supporting activists at the front line of human rights issues. If you have a couple of minutes to spare, please check out our website, which is hrf.org, to learn more about our work. HRF also produces the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is a global conference series where activists, dissidents, and many others share their stories and connect with people who share an interest in advancing human rights. We have a club here on Clubhouse called Oslo Freedom Forum, so, if you haven't already, please join it today and check out our website, which is oslofreedomforum.com. We are very honored to be joined today by four guests, and let me introduce them. <coughs> we have Svetlana Tikhanovskaya. She is a former presidential candidate and leader of the National Democratic Movement in Belarus. According to unofficial results, she received the most votes in the presidential election of Belarus in August of last year. However, the official results were falsified in favor of Alexander Lukashenko, and she was forced out of her country. She has been officially recognized as the rightful winner of the elections by the United States and most European countries. She has been rallying pressure on the unelected authorities, both inside and outside of Belarus, to stop state-sponsored violence in the country, and of course, peacefully bringing about free and democratic elections to resolve the crisis. We are also joined by Bill Browder, who is an economist and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, an investment fund specializing in Russian markets. In 2008, one of Bill's lawyers, Alexei Magnitsky, was arrested on charges of tax evasion after accusing Russian tax officials of systemic theft and fraud. Magnitsky, unfortunately, died in custody after 11 months of waiting trial. In response, Bill began a global campaign resulting in the Magnitsky Act, which is a law sanctioning individuals responsible for human rights violations. The Magnitsky Act has been passed by the United States and the European Union. We are also honored with the presence of Michael McFall, who is a professor at Stanford University and is also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Michael served for five years in the Obama administration, first as a special assistant to the president and senior director for Russian and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council at the White House, and then as U.S. ambassador to Russia, um, uh, sorry, as U.S. ambassador to Russia. Michael has authored several books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, from Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. And finally, 
we're honored with the presence of Gary Kasparov, who is an outspoken advocate for human rights and democracy in Russia. Widely considered history's greatest chess player, Gary retired from the sport in 2005 to devote his time to writing and human rights activism. He joined the other Russia, a pro-democracy coalition opposing Putin, and was a candidate in the 2008 Russian presidential race. He is currently the chairman of the Human Rights Foundation. Thank you everyone for joining us this afternoon. Today, we'll be talking about democracy, movement in Belarus, the state of civil society, in light of the ongoing crackdown, and on how the international community can help. But before we do, let me give you a quick note. Unlike previous Clubhouse discussions, HRF will be recording this conversation today because we will be releasing it later as a podcast. For that reason, we caution anyone participating today that if you have any security concerns, please use anonymity on your account profile. And if you want to speak, you have the option to do so, of course, but you have also the option of voicing your opinions without personal identifiers. Thank you so much for understanding. And now, uh, Svetlana just joined uh, the club. Uh, welcome, Svetlana. Let me start with you, if, if I may. Could you please give us an, an update on the state of the economic, of the democratic movement in Belarus? Uh, hello, everyone, and uh, thank you for organizing such a wonderful meeting with uh, wonderful people. Thank you for joining uh, all the rest of the people who um, may be supporting our democratic movement in Belarus today. And first of all, I uh, have to say that um, protesting movement in Belarus is continuing and it's not going to, people are not going to give up because they really woke up maybe this year and despite of the increasing level of repressions uh, in Belarus, despite of all the tortures in uh, jails and kidnapping people on the streets, people have this strong will to fight because they know what they're fighting for. They're fighting for safe country, for better future for our children, for new Belarus where everybody is respected and uh, where they um, will retain their right to vote, to speak, openly and will not be prosecuted for this. It's rather difficult to fight on the ground because, again, because of these uh, tortures and repressions and violence. And, uh, you know, people have to look for uh, new ways how to fight against regime. And uh, But we are united. And this feeling of unity, uh, regime will not be able to steal. So, you know, and uh, maybe during this conversation, we'll be able to find more opportunities to support people uh, in Belarus, uh, to support people who are fighting, uh, you know, uh, not looking at uh, all their repressions. So welcome, everybody. Thank you so much, Vitlana. I know that um, I looked at your website and, and I know you have a pretty comprehensive plan for, the, for how Belarus could look in the future. Um, could you perhaps tell us a bit about your plan for bringing about free and fair elections? You know, uh, 
our plan is uh, um, like to solve this problem peacefully. We want to uh, act like democratically and to make regime to answer uh, for our calls for negotiations between uh, people, uh, between civil society and regime. But we need to involve like third part. Uh, we consider OSCE to be the best platform for this dialogue to be a mediator, just uh, maybe to be like guarantors that all the um, agreements that uh, will be uh, brought to the table, they will be fulfilled in the, uh, you know, in, in the future. And to make these negotiations or dialogue possible, we have to put uh, as much pressure as needed inside the country and of course uh, outside the country. So, you know, this is our plan, this is our strategy, and, uh, you know, we can't stop and we will not because we understand that people who are in jails now, they um, rely on us. They uh, understand that nobody will be able to help them behind the bus except us. Makes sense. Thank you so much for that. Be before I go to Gary, I wanted to ask you, there has been so much support on the streets of Belarus for, for democracy and freedom. What do you think uh, the Lukashenko regime, despite all that support, is still able to survive in that context? You know, for 26 years, uh, Lukashenko uh, built this, his power. You know, and at the moment he uh, he lost the support of Belarusian people, but he still uh, can be in the power only thanks to repressions, thanks to fear uh, that he put in, inside people, and uh, because of the feeling of impunity. And uh, you know, it's rather easy to win when you have guns and debatants and all this right police. But again, we don't think that this is, you know, good idea for him to, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to continue these actions because, you know, at the moment we understand that he doesn't think about people. He doesn't think about his country. He thinks only about his power and uh, but he lost the connection with people and he maybe he still doesn't understand that uh, people are so united that they are not going to give up and they will fight uh, with this regime till our victory till our new elections gary maybe following up on what svetlana uh, told us what do you think that the putin regime cares so much about Lukashenko. There's a long history between between the two countries. Could, could you please tell us a bit about that? Yes, thank you, Roberto. Um, I, uh, I probably would bring uh, a pessimistic note to what just Lana said uh, at the end of her presentation, talking about next elections. I don't think elections will play any role in Belarus. Uh, whether Putin and Lukashenko could agree on some sort of uh, unification, which means that Belarus could be swallowed by Russia, or it will be um, an agreement that will uh, uh, justify uh, 
Russian invasion to put Russian Russian military force there to to guarantee that no uh, no anti Lukashenko um, revolt could happen among. Uh, Belarusian um, uh, security forces or uh, army. Uh, and I think that Lukashenko is staying there just because of this um, um, unflinching support from Putin. And for Putin, uh, uh, Lukashenko is, is always viewed as, you know, um, as another ruthless dictator who at one point probably was even viewed as a potential competitor because Lukashenko had some big ambitions about uh, uh, his future in, in, in one country if Belarus and Russia would be integrated. But uh, right now, uh, Putin knows that he, he must do whatever in his power to save Lukashenko. Otherwise, it will send a very, very bad signal uh, to um, Russian people. So Putin cannot afford uh, another dictator being overthrown um, just so close to Moscow, a few hundred kilometers from Moscow. This is not Syria. Uh, this is not uh, uh, other countries like Venezuela, uh, uh, though he also defending dictators there. So Lukashenko is very much you know, part of Putin's domestic agenda. And we'll see what, what will be the outcome of Putin-Lukashenko meeting. But it seems that now Lukashenko uh, is, um, is playing a, a role of, of an obedient servant who understands that he is... Uh, uh, his uh, political life and maybe physical life depends very much on, on Putin's favor. Thank you, Gary. And uh, so the, the, the Biden administration and many Western countries, like democracies in general, have been pretty, pretty strong in, in supporting the democratic movement in Belarus. Maybe this is a question for Svetlana. Svetlana, could you tell us what uh, this administration, uh, the Biden administration, can do to further support the democratic movement in the country? You know, uh, we heard the strong uh, message uh, sent Biden before his uh, becoming president that he is supporting Belarus people for in, his, in our fight for uh, democratic changes in Belarus. And uh, we really understand that the USA is a powerful uh, country is the first democracies in the world uh, can do a lot in our case and uh, uh, their fact that they ex uh, adopted this uh, act uh, of democracy in Belarus in very short period uh, approves this and we you know in a very uh, like strong contact with the ambassador to uh, Belarus, uh, Julie Fisher, and we are in contact and we uh, understand that they are not going to change their minds, that they are, that Belarus in uh, on agenda in Washington and um, recently sanctions were renewed, you know, and of course uh, the USA can do a lot and for sure they may be, uh, can influence their uh, somehow the results uh... I think we we have lost Svetlana but uh, uh, I wanted to ask you the same question Michael given your your vast experience in government so what do you think this administration can do to to further help the movement in Belarus based on you know your experience in in, in, in prior administrations or in in general 
Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real honor to be on a panel with uh, President Tsikhanovskaya. Uh, that's why I'm here, uh, to be uh, in her midst. Uh, I find what is going on in Belarus to be incredibly inspiring. Uh, brave people have been persistently fighting for democracy for months now. And I think we all have to understand and realize, I'm speaking here first as a political scientist, I'll talk about Biden in a minute, uh, but I study social movements and, and, and transitions from authoritarian rule. And there's a certain um, point in the battle between Democrats and autocrats where the Democrats uh, have the momentum uh, and they have the support of society. It doesn't mean they come to power then, but there's a point of no return. Uh, no one I know believes that the Lukashenko regime or a successor to President Lukashenko will ever have legitimacy in Belarus again. Um, that doesn't mean we know when to predict his fall. Uh, really bad, weak dictators can last a long time, especially when they have allies like Mr. Putin in the neighborhood. But it does remind me of, of other cases where the struggle was long, sometimes decades long in South Africa. Sometimes, you know, we had solidarity, uh, came to look like they were going to come to power in 81, and it took eight more years. Uh, 1996 in Serbia didn't happen, but it happened later in 2000. Um, Ukraine without Kuchma was 2001. It felt like failure, and there was breakthrough three years later. And I just want to remind people of that because I, I get the sense sometimes that there's uh, pessimism about what's happening in Belarus, uh, given how uh, oppressive the regime has been. And I just want to remind people that oftentimes there's a failure at breakthrough in the beginning and then breakthrough happens, uh, you know, uh, years down the road. And I, I fully predict that will happen with Belarus. I don't know when, but I just do not see a way that this regime ever uh, regains whatever authority, legitimacy, popularity it once had. Um, with respect to, to the Biden team, um, you know, I think they have made the uh, the, well, certainly candidate Biden said the right things. I'm very impressed with our new ambassador uh, and the way that she has uh, interacted with uh, President Tsikhanovskaya. I wish she would use that phrase, uh, President-elect Tsikhanovskaya. Maybe we could use that phrase. Um, I think that's important. Um, obviously, they could do more if they wanted to. Uh, they could do more with respect to sanctions. They could do more with organizing our allies to put more pressure on the Lukashenko regime. And they could do more with respect to how they are handling and dealing uh, with Mr. Putin, because without Mr. Putin, uh, there is no Lukashenko regime. Um, and I also think that I'd like to hear other people respond uh, to this um, on this uh, in this meeting. You know, there are other examples of governments in exile that um, become more consolidated, become more legitimated uh, and more deeply recognized than right now we see uh, with the governments in exile in Belarus. I, I was just speaking yesterday to an ambassador in a European country uh, from, from President Guaido's government. Um, and I think that is a, another signaling um, uh, policy that the Biden administration should consider. And then finally, I, you know, I'm just echoing here. Uh, I know some lots of people on this call, and, and I'm thinking of Gary in particular. Uh, always remember uh, when our friend uh, Boris Nemtsov used to say this. Gary says that I know all the time. 
there's one, you know, what one can do to help democratic opposition movements is one category, and we should dig deeper into that. Uh, but there's another category, which is don't help the autocrats. Um, and, and, you know, in the case of Belarus, uh, we're still helping the autocrats. Uh, and I think, you know, greater focus on uh, technology export controls. There's been some progress on that with respect to Belarus and probably many people participating in this event uh, were part of that effort. And I think that was a great successful effort. Uh, but I think just more focus on uh, direct, but all, more importantly, indirect ways uh, that democratic societies maybe inadvertently help autocrats uh, and to focus on that and to stop helping autocrats. I think that's a very important um, policy set of policy options that the Biden administration should consider. Thank you so much, Michael. Actually, you, you touched on something very important, which is sanctions, right? Economic sanctions, different type of sanctions. And uh, maybe this is a good way of, of, of asking Bill, who was the architect of the Magnitsky Act. Uh, what do you think are the, the most effective forms of sanctions against authoritarian regimes, Bill? Well, it's it's very clear and, and it's become <clears throat> a really widely used tool um, to go after the individuals as opposed to the country and to target them with asset freezes and visa sanctions, which has become the Magnitsky Act. And um, I, I can remember um, I was sitting on a, a panel um, with the um, uh, with the sister of, of a guy named Andrei Sanikov. Andrei Sanikov was a a presidential candidate um, in Belarus, and this was this was probably this must have been like ten years ago, um, and uh, he uh, he was in jail, and she was pleading for anything to do to to help her brother, and um, he, uh, he's eventually got out of jail because of the um, the sanctions that the EU placed on the um, on the uh, on the Lukashenko regime on the individuals. And um, uh, he and many other people would, would tell, tell you very clearly that if you go after their, them personally and you target them personally and target their money, um, that really has a very profound effect. And um, I also know that some people have been sanctioned, but, uh, I also, but my, my friends in the Belarusian opposition would like a lot more people to be sanctioned and um, can't understand why. Um, more people in, in in this regime haven't been sanctioned. I mean, it's it's plain and obvious what's going on. We can watch it. We can watch the pictures. It's it's there's no, nothing uh, nothing unclear about it. And and I, I I'm kind of afraid that we're in a world right now. Uh, it's it's burning in so many different places that 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 the amount of energy necessary to pressure uh, the United States and the EU to impose sanctions is dissipated by the number of different uh, crises going on everywhere. You've got uh, the whole situation in Russia. You've got the situation in China with the Uyghurs. You, you've got the situation in Venezuela. And and there's kind of almost uh, so many different things going on that, that, that nobody has time to pay attention to all the different things going on. And, and so I think Belarus... Uh, the Belarusian opposition deserves the support of, of the Western governments to sanction more people. Those sanctions clearly do work. And, um, 
and we're in this world where there's just not enough bandwidth of of government officials and and uh, elected officials to to give Belarusia, uh, the Belarus people, the, the 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 attention they deserve right now. Well, talk, talking about sanctions and and, and how they work, um, maybe this question for Svetlana. Could you please tell us about if you know the the the, the kind of dozens of sanctions issued by the by the U.S. and the European Union have been effective at changing at at, at providing incentives uh, to to high ranking Belarusian officials not to commit human rights violations? No, for sure, people uh, in Belarus and we uh, consider sanctions uh, very useful and powerful. That powerful that influence, um, you know, the, like, the situation inside the regime. Because even the threat of sanctions uh, is very painful for the regime because it's like a, um, like, maybe preventive measure to commit more uh, violence and crimes against humanity. And uh, really, uh, people in Belarus want more and more sanctions because they, um, uh, like, they don't. It, it's not like a punishment for people, but it's like uh, searching for justice. I'd say, and uh, they're sure that more judges and, and uh, uh, people from nomenclatura, and especially for right policemen and. Uh, high-ranked people uh, have to be on sanction list and they even ready to go further and put uh, families of these people on the sanction list because they really wonder why, for example, uh, one person is on sanction list but uh, son or daughter of, of this person is studying in uh, somewhere in uh, Western University. So uh, as for um, economical sanctions, you know, it's uh, uh, threatened for this regime as well because, of course, they uh, don't want to lose this trade relationship with, uh, uh, you know, with uh, foreign companies and they would prefer to avoid this. But it's very uh, significant leverage that really can influence the situation. So uh, we are standing for more... Uh, private uh, sanctions and uh, economic sanctions, but only to the companies that are um, like pocket of this regime, not on small businesses or you know people who are who are supporting uh, or businesses that are supporting uh, protesting movement, but like targeted sanctions. Franak, maybe you would add something. Uh, I can jump in here. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, actually, uh, right now we see uh, the U.S. introducing uh, sanctions. Uh, just uh, literally a few days ago it happened. And uh, immediately, immediately Lukashenko and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs reacted. It's really, it's really, really um, hitting on them. And uh, even, I think, 12 years ago, David Kramer was coming to Minsk to negotiate the release of political prisoners. And it was American uh, package of sanctions who helped to release Alexander Kazulin back then. And right now uh, we see a similar situation and um, sanctions become very important accountability tool that can really make a change, especially in a very difficult Belarus situation.
Thank you so much, Franak. By the way, I'm going to introduce Franak to everyone here because Svetlana might have to leave a bit early uh, on, uh, uh, like in this discussion. So uh, Franak is a senior advisor uh, to Svetlana. He is a journalist and an activist who has frequently advocated for personal freedom and democracy in Belarus. For his activism and journalism in uh, Belarus, of course, he has been jailed multiple times. So Franak, thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to ask... Uh, Speaking about the, the topic of sanctions, uh, I wanted to pose this question to Michael, perhaps. What do you think is stopping the, the Biden administration from, from issuing more sanctions? Honestly, I don't know. Um, uh, I don't have a, a sense for what they've decided to do and what they haven't. I, I, I would mar remind everybody that they don't really have their full team in place. Um, Their appointments have gone very slowly. Um, I think the, the person who will be most responsible for Belarus and Russia, uh, uh, if she's confirmed, is uh, uh, Ambassador Toria Newland. Uh, she'll become the undersecretary for political uh, affairs at the State Department. That's the number three job in the State Department. Uh, but she has not been confirmed. She hasn't even had her hearing, I don't think. Um, uh, and let alone the assistant, the new assistant secretary that has been nominated, uh, Karen Donfried has been named. And so, you know, what normally happens in a transition uh, is that they do their policy reviews. I most certainly was part of that back in 2009. And my, my perception is that a thorough policy review uh, of the region uh, with Russia in, in the middle of it uh, has not occurred yet. Um, I do know they're considering and talking about how they can upgrade their team. And remember, in the in the Trump administration, they had a special envoy uh, for uh, Ukraine and for Donbass in particular. Uh, Kurt Volker uh, was his name. It is his name, but he no longer has that position. And, um, you know, I know there's been some discussion. Should there be a special envoy for Belarus? Should there be a special envoy maybe for the whole region, specifically focused on issues of democracy. And, and I actually think that's a good idea because as a former government official, I can tell you that when you're, when you're the, you know, the senior advisor at the National Security Council for Russia, uh, as I was, um, or the ambassador, as I was, uh, your portfolio is everything. Um, you know, you have to deal with... Um, many other issues besides just the democracy piece. And I, and I feel that, uh, especially for the ambassadors in the region, uh, when you have a special envoy, that special envoy uh, can just focus on one set of issues and, and also can be, I think, a very important interlocutor with our allies uh, in Europe. Um, and, and I most certainly think that would be a welcome assignment and it would elevate to, you know, to Bill's point about their, their, you know, they have so many things going on. Uh, he didn't even mention COVID or the, you know, the economy, which is uh, the things that are most central to President Biden's agenda right now. Uh, obviously there's a lot of focus on China, um, but I think there needs to be more focus on, on uh, containing the belligerent policies of, of Vladimir Putin Uh, and one of those belligerent policies is supporting Mr. Lukashenko, who's, of course, in Moscow today. So I would like to see an elevation of attention. And one of the ways you can get that is through uh, the appointment of special envoys.
Thank you so much, Michael. So it's a bit over after 12.30, so we're going to open it uh, for questions from our listeners. So please, everyone, if you have a question, you'll see the option uh, close to the bottom to, to raise your hand and ask a question. But before we do, let me ask uh, Svetlana, who might or might not have to leave a bit earlier uh, from this discussion. Uh, like people always wonder, right, right, what can I do? How can I help? How can I support? So maybe for everyone listening here, what would you recommend them to do to, to support the democracy movement in in Belarus? What what can they do? What can normal people do? You know, first of all, I uh, want to say thank you to the almost uh, the whole world, the people of the whole world that uh, really showed the solidarity with Belarusian people in our fight and every day we are uh, we get the same question how can I help and we are talking if, if we are talking about usual people over, over all over the world first of all that you can do is just to um, talk about Belarus keep Belarus on agenda in your mass media, uh, I don't know, putting pressures, sorry, for to your governments to pay attention to Belarus to Belarusian questions, and what is uh, important for uh, our prisoners is to get letters from uh, other countries because they are really harshly suffering in our jails, and when they get letters, not only from Belarusian people but uh, let us all over the world, they really understand that the whole world with us, that not only Belarusians are fighting for their freedom, for their religion, but the, uh, you know, the people from uh, other countries are also involved. And it's very inspiring. And they need this inspiration. They need this support uh, greatly. So please, uh, if uh, after this conversation, uh, everybody of uh, you know, who is here will write a couple of words uh, of support to political prisoners, it would be a really big step, uh, you know, to, to help these people. And one more uh, very important issue is uh, supporting of civil society. I mean, uh, uh, you can donate to funds that are helping people uh, to survive uh, uh, in Belarus, that uh, help political prisoners, the families of political prisoners, to businesses that uh, uh, lost uh, their businesses because uh, because they said they was uh, for changes, and it really uh, you know helps us to survive, uh, helps Belarusians to survive. If you uh, will support mass media uh, in Belarus and journalists that are under attack, striking committees. Uh, I don't know, doctors, uh, you know, all the uh, groups of uh, civil society in Belarus, it will be a, a great help to everybody. Um, I think it is, you know, the letters and, uh, you know, donates are maybe two most uh, important uh, things that everybody can do. Thank you. Thank you so much, Svetlana. I think we have a question from Melissa. You're on, on stage. Hi, thank you so much. Um, this question is for everyone, including the president-elect, if she has time to answer this as well. Um, she had just mentioned, you know, what the 
whole world can do and thanking the whole world. And my question is um, what the panelists think about the effectiveness of an alliance of democratic nations, the way uh, the Halifax Security Forum has talked about and the talk of the establishment of a D10 of democratic nations and what that would actually look like and entail, like would this sort of be like an expanded quad? And if we look at the quad now, you know, there's a sense that those nations are still trying to figure out what that relationship looks like. Thank you. We can start with, with Michael or Gary or whoever wants to take the question. Uh, sure, I'm happy to start, but I, I really look forward to hearing what Gary says. Uh, of course, uh, the autocrats are organized. I call it the illiberal international. Uh, they coordinate. They have their meetings. They think about their shared ideological perspectives. They give money to uh, different political parties. Uh, their media is highly coordinated. So uh, without question, Democrats of the world need to unite. Um, and uh, I, I support the ideas of uh, governments doing it. Uh, the questioner, I didn't see who it was, mentioned the Quad in Asia, but I want to remind everybody, uh, you know, there's all, there was for decades a Quad in Europe as well. When I was a U.S. ambassador, our Quad met every Thursday at 11. Uh, it was the Brits, the French, the Germans, and the Americans. And that tradition exists in many capitals, uh, but could be uh, resurrected. But I also want to make sure it's not just governments. Um, you know, I applaud the Biden administration's idea to have a democracy summit, and I've written about that. And, and I think the D10 is fine, although I don't know <laughs> where you draw the line between D10 and then 11, 12, and 13, um, because there are other more democracies in the world than just 10. Uh, but I don't want it to become another government-to-government -government forum. Uh, that was one of the mistakes that the community of democracies made in the 1990s, I'll bet you most people on this uh, platform don't even know about the communities of democracies that was started in the Clinton years. And one of the problems that happened with that is twofold. One, it was governments. And therefore, there was a lot of consideration of who got in the club and who didn't. And in my view, they extended uh, invitations too widely, and that diluted uh, uh, membership. So that was a mistake that shouldn't be repeated. Um, but number two, uh, you know, a summit of democracy should be small D Democrats uh, of all uh, types, whether they are presidents in exile or whether they are presidents in the White House or whether they are, you know, the Gary Kasparovs of the world uh, and everybody in between. Uh, I think this uh, uh, you know, making this a transnational movement about ideas rather than a government to government uh, piece, I think is really important. And, and you know, my own view is that uh, we haven't been thinking an, enough about the ideas of democracy and human rights and rule of law. Uh, I say this as a professor, uh, you know, we kind of thought we had won those, uh, that ideological struggle back at the end of the Cold War. And it turns out we didn't, and we're back into it. And I want to see a resurrection and renewal of, of thinking about those ideas um, and then ways to help uh, disseminate those ideas in a much more systematic way through 
you know, multiple different platforms of which, you know, we're on one right now, but, but I think we need a much bigger strategy for it. Uh, and, uh, that is governments, uh, governmental actors, but also non-governmental actors, media, philanthropy, uh, uh, all those coordinated so that we have our response to the illiberal international. Thank you so much, Michael. Gary, do you want to respond? Yes, absolutely. Um, I believe that the creation of legal democracy is long overdue. Um, I probably would uh, um, correct uh, Michael, who said that uh, the war uh, against uh, authoritarianism and totalitarianism was not won in 1991. No, this war was won. America was triumphant. But the, the history doesn't end. Uh, and we all were jubilant in 91-92. But what we found out that the moment our vigilance um, is no longer there, the moment we turn to be complacent, uh, the evil comes back because the evil doesn't die. It uh, doesn't disappear. It could be buried under the rubble of Berlin Wall for a while. But no, the moment we lose our vigilance, it sprouts out. Uh, uh, and um, also, um, I like very much what Mike, Mike said about the responsibilities of ambassadors and, and special envoys. Uh, he, he was absolutely right. He knows it from his own experience uh, that uh, ambassador had to deal with many things because he or she, they represent the country and the country could have you know, other things you know, rather than uh, democracy or human rights. And that definitely puts limitations on, on the work of, of diplomats. But if you have an envoy who uh, concentrates on democracy and human rights, that could also send a signal about the priorities. Unfortunately, the priorities of Biden administration are not democracy and human rights. And uh, we see it you know, by, by the fact that, for instance, former Secretary of State John Kerry was uh, nominated to be the Green Star. And the fact is that uh, the person of that caliber and uh, political heavyweight now is concentrating on, on climate agenda. That's a, that's a message to uh, authoritarian authoritarians around the world, especially to China and Russia. And uh, we could see that the, today's climate meeting, you know, definitely uh, makes a big priority for, for uh, Biden and his team. I'm not here to argue about the importance of that and necessity to work together, but that's exactly, you know, what, what, what happens when you prioritize certain things at the expense of others. From Putin's perspective, you know, it just, it's the dealing on climate and making empty, empty promises. It's an easy way out. And, and it's, it, it definitely could, you know, could bring down uh, the painful for Putin and other dictators issues of human rights and, and democracy. And uh, before America concentrates on, on, on democracy uh, um, and human rights as, a, as, as the indispensable part of its uh, foreign policy agenda, nothing will happen in Belarus or, or in Venezuela. Uh, you have president-elect uh, uh, in Belarus, you have the president uh, Guaido, but unfortunately dictators like Maduro and, uh, and um, uh, Lukashenko, they keep, you know, keep staying in power because they enjoyed unflinching support from Vladimir Putin. And Putin is not paying price for that. And uh, moreover, Biden has to follow his, his other priorities and to continue uh, making uh, overtures to Putin. And his latest call with Vladimir Putin was uh, very disappointing. So um, I uh, believe that uh, uh, 
it's time, as I said, long overdue to, to con consider the League of Democracy or, or something like that, because the United Nations today is a paragon of, uh, uh, for dictators. Every uh, week in September, pre-pandemic time, we had, you know, the, the UN week in New York with uh, all, the, all the authoritarian and totalitarian leaders uh, gathering here. And it was like a catwalk for dictators. Uh, UN is not, uh, uh, is not, uh, has not been built to solve problems. It was more, more about freezing them uh, and avoiding immediate conflicts. And if we want to, for, demo, for democracies to have a more powerful voice, we need democratic countries. Uh, typically, we said West, but now, obviously, we should look at Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, countries in, 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 in South America. I'm sure, you know, we could look for some African countries that will qualify. But it's very important to send a message that countries like China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, they will not be included in this club. And that will send a message of hope to people who are suffering under this dictatorship because they will see that America is back in the game, America is taking a lead, America is carrying the torch of freedom again. <clears throat> I'm just going to say a couple things. We, we, we kind of already have this League of Democracies um, through the Magnitsky Act. Um, as I've been going around the world trying to get different countries to sign up to Magnitsky Acts, uh, the... Uh, the ones that are interested are the rule of law countries, the democracies. And, um, and those are also, by the way, the ones where all the kleptocrats want to keep their money. And, um, and so we got the United States first and then Canada, then the UK and then the European union. And, um, uh, we're on, on deck with Australia and I guess New Zealand will follow quickly after that. And then Japan and, and then Taiwan and, um, and then we've got a pretty good collection, at least uh, from a start, um, from a sanctioning point of view anyways, to really operate in unison. And, and this was used um, recently against China um, for the um, concentration camps and the Uyghur genocide, where um, all four, I guess, 30 countries altogether sanctioned uh, Chinese officials involved in the concentration camps. And I, I think that that um, this is, uh, you know, the, the same countries that did the Magnitsky Act are kind of this this new collection. And uh, they're eventually going to be having Magnitsky conferences to, to compare notes on who to sanction next. So it can be all done in unison. And when it's done in unison, by the way, it really it has a very um, negative effect on the recipients. And, and um, uh, we saw that with how China responded to the Magnitsky sanctions and and. Um, I think this is kind of a, a very good platform to, to, to build out on for, for not just for sanctions, but for, for other types of um, collective action. Thank you so much, Bill. Um, Franciszek? Uh, yes, hi. Uh, my name is uh, Franciszek Kakulic. I'm a Belarusian American. Um, I'm a PhD student in the University of Illinois, Chicago here. I have a question for everyone here. Um, the one thing that's obviously on the mind on the mind of a lot of Belarusians is right now is the question of actually sovereignty of Belarus. Um, it, it is one thing to deal in with dictatorship and a completely different thing to be uh, for Belarus to be absorbed and integrated into Russia. 
Um, from last year to this year, the number of people who are opposed in Belarus uh, due to uh, some surveys um, are opposed in Belarus to integration with Russia rose from, I believe, about 30 percent to uh, up to 50 percent now. But at the same time, it's only half of the people within the Belarus that understand the situation and, uh, you know, the depth of situation and uh, the possibility of losing of Belarus losing its sovereignty. So that being said, I guess my question is, um, A, what is the way for uh, how can we possibly work with Belarusian people? Um, I'm talking about all of the Belarusian people, even the ones who are apolitical in terms of educating them and dealing with the propaganda, the strong propaganda that comes from Belarus news and Russian news, um, and in terms of understanding them that there is a real possibility of the Belarusian people losing the sovereignty of their country. And second of all, I guess, question for the United States is, where is this line uh, after which one, you know, um, during the process of integration, where would the United States would possibly step in? you know, at which point of this process, if that's obviously something that will happen. Thank you. Thank you, Franishek. Maybe we can start with uh, Svetlana. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, I, you know, first of all, to uh, struggle with uh, propaganda, to we have to uh, educate people, I'd say, to explain them uh, the consequences, um, consequences, sorry, uh, so the, the results of such integration, because it's, it's, it was correctly said that not maybe everyone understands the, uh, what will happen uh, just uh, you know, in, in the case of integration. And to strengthen uh, this position of people, we have to remind all the time that we are a separate nation. We are not part of uh, any other country. We have to uh, strengthen our national identity, to study our history. Uh, also, we have to develop independent media that are telling true truth, that are uh, like again uh, educating people, and we have to build uh, structures on the ground. We have never had any independent organizations like doctors' organizations or striking committees. We are, uh, we are studying to, uh, you know, to work together, to listen to each other, but not one person who uh, said he's, uh, you know, uh, our leader. So, and uh, we have to, like, to underline that our in the, our independence, uh, that uh, our sovereignty and our independence are not for trade. It's our country, and we have. It's a pity that we have to fight for this independence now. But this is our path, and together, united, we have to go through these difficulties. Thank you, Svetlana. Maybe someone else wants to take uh, that question as well. I can I can um, just add and to emphasize great great what Svetlana has said. Uh, Belarusians uh, protested in August last year for uh, free elections, of course, because uh, their votes were stolen. But right now we have more and more issues on the table, and we see the threats uh, that are coming every day: threats to independence and sovereignty, uh, and uh, the these topics discussed in the society they are changing. 
Um, I, but I but I feel that Belarusian um, society is already mature enough. This feeling of national identity is strong enough, uh, and Belarusians uh, feel absolutely separate, a self-sufficient nation. And one of the most important and popular meme on the Belarusian internet is like Belarus is not Russia. And I know and it has many, many hidden senses, but it's very important. And uh, right now we also struggle when we talk to foreigners about Belarus crisis, we struggle to separate Belarus issue from Russia. Because when a Belarus issue, Belarus crisis is discussed as the part of Russian context, Belarus is lost somewhere. We always, uh, we always remind um, foreign leaders that uh, please consider us separately. It's not the Cold War era. Let's uh, leave uh, spheres of influence in the past. Belarus is separate, Russia is separate. And uh, it will help us a lot to solve a Belarus crisis much quicker than to solve you know, the, the whole um, regional um, crisis caused by, by Kremlin's imperial policy. Uh, I, I would like to add you know, that, um, that in, in Belarus today, uh, the uh, movement for you know, Belarus, Belarusian um, sovereignty and, uh, and uh, full independence, uh, it's, it's, it should be closely tied with the fight against Lukashenko. Because it's it's they cannot be separated. Uh, Lukashenko is 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 not a president. Uh, he uh, he stole the elections, uh, and he's more and more looks like uh, uh, Putin's envoy in, in, in Belarus. And uh, um, I think what uh, uh, what uh, could happen in Belarus uh, might uh, be similar to uh, events in Eastern Europe more than three decades ago, where the um, uh, anti-communist movement, uh, movement against totalitarian regime, was combined with um, fight against Soviet occupation. Uh, technically, we can say that Belarus today is is, is a satellite state of of, of Putin's Russia, and uh, I believe that the free world should, as Pramik said, separate Belarus from Russia, but should hold Putin responsible for uh, for supporting um, uh, an usurper. Uh, the man who, um, who is known for his uh, ruthless rule and uh, who uh, is relying on, on brute force repressions uh, um, uh, uh, to stay in power illegally. And I think that will be very helpful if, if uh, the free world will, um, will combine the fight against Lukashenko's dictatorial power with, with uh, further calls to, uh, to end Russian, uh, um, uh, Russian attempts to uh, absorb uh, Belarus and to end uh, both de facto and who knows, maybe the jury, the uh, Belarusian sovereignty. Thank you so much, Gary. Now let's hear from, from, from Larry. Uh, yes, hello everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, my name is Larry Paul Tartsev. Uh, I live in Washington, DC and uh, uh, in my spare time, I'm actually a member of the uh, Magnitsky Act Initiative. So uh, we are actually lobbying for uh, individuals, mostly from Russian Federation, to be put on the uh, Magnitsky list uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, my question is for the panel. Um, well, um, do you see any, uh, do you anticipate any significant actions from from the European side, from our allies in Europe, 
in respect to the Magnitsky Act, more sanctions against Russia and Belarus uh, uh, and sort of any kind of movement. Because at the moment, uh, my concern is that they are very much preoccupied for economic reasons uh, with this uh, new northern, what, what it's called, the uh, oil pipeline from Russia that they're trying to build in Germany and so forth. Do you see that uh, their politics will be influenced mostly by their uh, economic decisions or they are still committed uh, to the Magnitsky Act initiative and uh, uh, democracy movements in Belarus and uh, Ukraine? Uh, what, what do you think? I'll take this question. I think that there is one really um, huge deficiency in the way that Europe conducts its foreign policy, which is that um, it's not a, if there's no real sort of EU foreign policy, it's the foreign policy of 27 countries that have to get together and unanimously agree whatever decision they want to take. And so you end up with a situation where any one of those 27 countries can veto by not approving a decision. And we've seen this happen with the Magnitsky Act in a number of occasions. Uh, Hungary, <clears throat> which is run by Viktor Orban, uh, who's a big friend of Vladimir Putin, had for a number of years blocked even the passage of the EU Magnitsky Act. And um, we've also seen, uh, I believe, that was Cyprus blocking for a period of time any sanctions that the EU wanted to impose on Belarusian officials uh, uh, until until that was overcome, and so the this this uh, weird veto uh, that little countries have creates this lowest what I call lowest common denominator effect, where the um, uh, the decisions coming out of the EU um, have to pass muster with these countries like. Malta and Cyprus and Hungary and and others, and um, and Putin understands this completely, and so he's able to um, pick off people that pick off countries, little countries that will support him, and and by doing so, uh, effectively drive a Trojan horse into the EU, and affect their ability to do anything, and so um, you end up in a situation like just just today, there was this uh, uh, the the um, it's been announced that that it was discovered that that the two guys who did the Novichok poisoning were involved in a in an explosion of of a um, uh, a bunch of uh, stuff in in the Czech Republic in 2014, and I mean it was effectively a, a, a Russian terrorist Russian state terrorist act in the Czech Republic, and the best that the EU could do is say um, we're deeply concerned by it. And so I think that um, that is the um, uh, that's the that, that's a real problem. Thank you so much, Bill. This has been a, a wonderful conversation, really. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But before we close the, the discussion, I wanted to ask the last question to President-elect Tikhanovskaya. Uh, what do you think is the single most important thing you hope our listeners hopefully learn from this conversation today? Uh, I, first of all, I, again, I, I'm really grateful for organizing this conversation 
thank you for involvement in uh, Belarus question. And I have to say that we are uh, in really tough fight for our democracy. And I understand that uh, all the responsibility uh, for in this fight lies on uh, Belarusian people. But I have to say this that this situation is uh, the challenge for the whole dem for all democratic countries as well. And uh, I want to call you to stand uh, for the democratic values. Uh, it's uh, human rights, dignity, I don't know, right to choose, to stand, to vote, or to, to, to speak, to vote, and uh, just be with us uh, on this difficult path. And with your help, with your solidarity, we will succeed. And we will be grateful to uh, all of you <laughs> during the next decades. So thank you once again, and thank you to all the participants, and Zhevye Belarus. Thank you so much, and, and thank you, everyone, uh, or listeners, for joining the conversation. Um, thank you, Michael, Bill, Gary, Frenak, and President-elect Tikhanovskaya. It has been wonderful, really, and, and enlightening. I don't know, Michael, if you have some last words? Uh, no, <laughs> just my last words is it's a pleasure to be with you all. Really interesting conversation, and I'm honored to be with uh, everybody here. This is my first uh clubhouse uh, event so I'm, I'm now inaugurating one more platform about what to speak about these issues so i but i'm very honored to be here thanks a lot for everybody thank you michael so much and thank you everyone for listening please join us next week with another interesting conversation as part of our dissidents and dictators clubhouse thank you so much everyone